Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, Grant Memorial. Good morning. My name is Cam, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so happy that you have uh, joined us today, even on this September long weekend, which uh, when the weather comes so quickly, terribly so quickly, uh, it almost feels like this might be our last hurrah at getting outside and having some good weather. So I uh, appreciate that you have made uh, the trek out this morning to join with us as we worship God together and as we dig into his word. Now, it was about 10 months ago this week that we started to walk through the gospel of Mark, uh, taking a close look at the uh, life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves now nearing the end of this gospel in the final week of Jesus' life. Now, before you uh, assume that we will move on to another study soon, you need to know that Mark devotes nearly a third of his gospel to this last week of Jesus' life, and so we still have a ways to go regarding content. However, strictly when it comes to timeline, there are no less than, or there are less than three days left in the pre-resurrected life of Christ. So to continue reading, I invite you to open your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read from verse 20 to 25 today. Mark 11, starting at verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today that as we uh, look into this text, Lord, that we would cling on to your promises and that we would uh, become a people whose faith is increased in you. Amen. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you will remember reading the first few verses that we just read, right? Verse 20 and 21 was the bookend of the fig tree narrative that was injected with Jesus' visit and judgment of the temple. And the reason that we read it again this morning is that it reminds us of the context within which Jesus says what he says. You see, today's text is not a standalone passage, but exists within the context of what Jesus is doing in replacing how things have been to how they will be as a result of his great work that he will accomplish in the next few days. You see, ever since Jesus started making his way towards Jerusalem, he's been teaching that things were about to change that what he would accomplish in Jerusalem would make things new. Things would be different. We saw that as he entered into Jerusalem as a different kind of king, one who entered the city to bring peace, not war, one who desired to save the world and not conquer it. 
And as we saw last week, when Jesus, both in his actions and teaching in the temple, and symbolically through his interaction with the fig tree, declared that the temple system would be replaced, it would be made obsolete as he would become one sacrifice for all, and that his presence would be made available to all who call on his name. And here... Jesus addresses something with his disciples specifically that was seemingly about to change for them. You see, in just a couple of days, Jesus was going to leave them. And all they had known about life and ministry over the past three years would be different. You see, the disciples had the presence of God among them and the power of God available to them everywhere they went. Right? Think about the last three years for these guys. If they needed provision, they could simply turn and ask Jesus who was right there. If they needed wisdom, they could simply turn and ask Jesus who was among them. If they needed protection, they could uh, simply ask Jesus who was with them. Right? If they needed the miraculous, the power of God was right there in the person of Christ. But now he was going to leave them. He would no longer be physically with them. So how could they do what Jesus had commissioned them to do, that is, to continue Jesus' ministry of preaching, teaching, and healing without the power of God in their midst, without the physical presence of Jesus? Well, that is what we read in this text. Here, Jesus takes the opportunity to explain to the disciples that though he would not be with them physically, that not much was changing in terms of their access to God. You see, because, as we talked about last week, Jesus was going to make the temple obsolete. God the Father and his power would be made available to them just as if Jesus were still among them. Uh, look at verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Just as you have had faith in me, in my presence, in my power, Jesus says, you can trust in the presence and power of God even in my absence. When you needed something, you simply asked while I was with you. Well, when I am gone, all you need to do is simply ask the Father. Right? Nothing is changing in regards to your access to the power of God. Just as I have given you what you've asked for, just as I have provided for you, so will the Father when I am gone. Right? Jesus responds to Peter's amazement at what happened with the fig tree, saying, when I am gone, you will still see the power of God working among you. In fact, you will see greater things than a withered plant. Just come to the Father in prayer and have faith that he will answer. Now, first of all, can we just stop to admire the kindness of God here, right? Jesus says that because of his death and resurrection, we, all believers, have direct access to God. That the very power of God, the same power that created the world and conquered death itself, is available to us. As Romans 8, 11 says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. May we not miss this truth and this gift that God has given us, access to him and to the very power of God through prayer. Church, this is incredible, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, you have access to God through prayer. 
Right? Let that sink in for a second. I know a bunch of you didn't do it. I can see. <laughs> but don't miss this. You have access to God through prayer because of what Jesus has done in his re- death and resurrection. Right? If you only leave here this morning with one thing, may it be that. If you're here today and you're struggling, you have access to God in prayer. If you're desperate, if you're lonely, anxious, uh, sad, you have access to God in prayer. Because Jesus has changed everything. Because he has torn the veil between us and God and given us his very own spirit. We do not need to go to a priest to pray for us. Or to offer an animal sacrifice. We don't need a shaman or a witch doctor to access power. We don't need to jump through all sorts of religious hoops. We can simply pray. As James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Well, besides simply telling the disciples that they can and should pray, he teaches them, uh, well, I've got it down to five, it's probably more than that, but five truths about prayer that will help them as they seek God when Jesus is gone. And so this morning, uh, we're going to join the disciples to learn about prayer through the words of Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus teaches the disciples about prayer in this text is to trust God. Trust God. In verse 22, Jesus says plainly, right off the top, have faith in God. Trust in God. You see, friends, prayer without faith is nothing. Right? It's, it's talking out loud or thinking to yourself. Right? If, if we don't believe that God can and will answer our prayers, there's no point in praying at all. If you, when you pray, you are just saying words before dinner or before bed just for the sake of praying, right? This is something I always do. It's something that, you know, I probably should do. But you don't have faith that God hears or can and will intervene. Your prayers are no different than those in the fruitless temple that Jesus has been casting judgment upon, right? Remember the temple? That which was supposed to be a house of prayer, but instead had turned into a religious roadblock full of rites and rituals devoid of God. Friends, we are not to pray rote prayers because we feel obligated to pray or because we think that it helps us check off a box of some sort. We, in contrast to the old temple, are to pray in faith that God hears us and that God desires to abide with us through communion and conversation. Have faith, Jesus says. Trust that God can and does hear. Now, before we move on to the second point about effective prayer, about what prayer looks like, it's important that we do not confuse where we place our faith. Right? Our text said, have faith in God, which means that our faith is not to be placed in our prayers, right? If I say this prayer or if I declare these words, even a mountain can be moved, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. It also means that that our faith is not to be placed in ourselves, as if there's a process that I can follow that will produce miraculous results, right? I have the ability to throw this mountain into the sea. No, you don't. God does, And our faith must be placed in him. And finally, our faith is not to be placed in faith. 
which is similar to the last one, but I've heard too often people chastising themselves or others for not having enough faith as if it was their faith that was ultimately in control. Right? That's not true. Our faith doesn't work miracles. God works miracles. And Jesus says that right off the top, have faith, not in faith, not in self, not in prayer, but in God. When we pray, we must know who the source is and place our faith in that source. Have faith in God, Jesus says. Next, Jesus teaches them to think big in regards to prayer, right? Think big. You see, if it's true that the God of the universe can and does hear and grants access to his very own power to those who call on him, it means that the disciples, and by extension, we can pray about God-sized things, now, I like to think that I'm a pretty handy guy, right? If there's anything around the house that needs fixing or there are some renovations to do, I like to do it myself, if at all possible. And when it comes to renovations and repairs, there are three levels of jobs when it comes to me and my abilities, right? Perhaps you can relate. The, the, category of, the first category of capacity is I can do it myself, Right? I can do it myself. There are things that I already know how to do. Right? And some of you are looking up like, yeah, you can twist in a light bulb. That's probably the extent of it. No, no, no. It's a little more than that. Not much, but a little more than that. Right? But there are some things that I already know how to do. Right? I've done them before, or they're simple enough to figure out. There are just some things that, that I can just do myself. Well, the second category of capacity is the kind of job that I can do myself with some help. Right? I can do it myself with a little bit of help. Now, I'm blessed to know some people who know more than I do. And there are some tasks where I use them for support. And so a simple phone call to Chad the electrician or Brian the plumber and maybe a picture or two sent back and forth often helps me to be able to accomplish the task myself. Right? They share their expertise. They walk me through the job. And as a result, I can accomplish the task. These days, YouTube has become that helping hand for many of us. Now, the third level of task is a job that I can't do at all, right? I just can't do. There are some jobs that are just out of my area of expertise, out of my capacity. And in order for the job to get done, I need someone else to do it for me, right? Those are the jobs that I contract out. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because I think this provides a decent scale for us when it comes to how many of us approach prayer, Right? There are some things in life, or at least we think, that we can do ourselves. Right? We don't really need to pray about it. Right? I don't really need to pray for food on the table because I have a job, I get a paycheck, I go to the grocery store. Right? I, I can do that. And if I do pray about it, it's pretty much lip service. Right? Maybe I pray about it, but, uh, but I've already got the whole thing planned out. I pray to God, but I trust in myself. And then there are some things that we can do ourselves, but we need a little bit of God's help. And so we trust God to help us answer our own prayers. And this is the category that I think the majority of our, play, of our prayers land. The, the phone a friend category. Right? The God, I'm doing this thing, please help me do it. Or give me wisdom to accomplish what I'm trying to do. Right? These are the kind of help the doctors type prayers. Right? We've mostly got it covered. You know, if, if I didn't pray, it'd probably end up similarly, but, you know, please help it to go smoothly. And then, 
there are the impossible prayers. The I can't do this on my own type prayers. The I need a miracle prayers, or as Jesus calls them here, the mountain mover prayers. And this text, Jesus says, trust in God no matter what, which means that he's inviting us into praying the impossible prayers. Look at verse 23. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart and believes that what they've said will happen, it will be done for them. Right? Jesus says really trusting in God means praying mountain-moving prayers. Right? Now, just to be sure, Jesus is not prescribing that we all pray for literal mountains to be moved. Right? He's, he's actually using a well-known Jewish rabbinical hyperbolic illustration here. Right? It's used all throughout uh, rabbinical teaching. You see, within Israelite culture, a mountain represented just an immovable constant Right? A power that was firm and stable and unceasing. Even when the entire landscape were to change, the mountain would remain the same. Right? Which is why God himself is referred to in this way, called the rock throughout all of the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is saying here is that no matter what you are up against, no matter how immovable or how seemingly permanent a situation may be, no matter how long that rock, that mountain has been there, it is still subject to God who by his mighty power can throw even mountains into the sea. Friends, it is impossible for a mountain to be moved. There is no hope for us ever accomplishing such a thing which is precisely the point Jesus is making. Nothing is impossible for God. And so we can put our faith in him in all circumstances, even in what seems impossible. Now that is the general meaning of what Jesus is saying here, but a deeper dive into the context of the passage, I think, accentuates the point even further. Did you notice that when Jesus refers to the mountain, he's referring to a specific mountain? Did you pick that out? Verse 23, if anyone says to this mountain, you see, Jesus is actually using a visual for his disciples here, right? They have something in view, and Jesus uses it as his example, now, as much as I wish I could say definitively what it is that they were looking at, I, I can share three possibilities according to their vantage point at the time about what Jesus may have been referring to when he said, you can even move this mountain. The first possibility is that Jesus was referring to the mountain that they were standing on, the Mount of Olives. Remember, as they were talking, they were traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem as they did each morning for this final week of Jesus' life. And they were literally walking on the Mount of Olives to get to Jerusalem, right? We know that they were there at this moment. And while not a particularly large mountain, Jesus may have been responding to Peter's acknowledgement of the fig tree by saying, you think a withered plant is a big deal? Well, God has the ability to move the very ground we're standing on and all the plants on it. Right? In this case, it would be kind of a you-ain't-seen-nothing-yet type of message from Jesus. Right? God can do infinitely more than what you've seen. He can literally uproot the ground beneath us. That's one option. Another option, which I find extremely interesting, 
um, is that Jesus was referring to Herod's fortress. Right? That Jesus was referring to Herod's fortress when he said this mountain. Listen to R.C. Sproul, uh, his thoughts on this. And this is representative of, of many scholars. It says this, Jesus and his disciples were standing near the withered fig tree, which was on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. From that vantage point, they could see the Herodian fortress built by King Herod the Great. Even to this day, the ruins of that massive fortress are apparent in the landscape. When Herod built it, he used slave labor to transfer the earth from a hill to form the foundation and support structure for the fortress. In literal terms, to the people, Herod the Great moved a mountain to build his fortress. The people were aware of that prodigious feat, and Jesus took advantage of that knowledge to provide an object lesson, teaching them that if they had faith in God, they could do similarly amazing deeds. Okay, so the second option is that Jesus was pointing out the daunting fortress, right, that stood intimidatingly over the land, saying that even the iron fist that the people desired to get out from under was not too great for God to move out of the way. And the third option uh, is that Jesus was referring to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that they had visited the previous day. Right? In the Old Testament, the temple is extensively referred to, both historically and prophetically, as the mountain of the Lord, or Mount Zion. And Jesus and the disciples would also have been able to see the temple mount from their vantage point as they traveled over the Mount of Olives. And they may have been looking at the temple when Jesus said, this mountain. Right? Now, this possibility would be consistent with the context of the previous text Right, with the fig tree pointing to the temple and the New Testament teaching that the temple would be moved from Jerusalem to the very bodies of believers. Now, as interesting as all three of these possibilities are, we, we just don't know which uh, mountain for sure that Jesus was referring to. But from where I stand, I think it's actually better for our purposes. Maybe they were looking at all three depending on which way they were looking you see, the main point is that there is nothing outside of the control and authority of God. And therefore, nothing that God cannot cast aside for his sons and daughters when they call on him. Whether physical obstacles like the Mount of Olives, whether political resistance like Herod, whether religious opposition like the temple, God is greater and we can place our faith in him. No matter what that mountain is. And so as Christians, we are called to pray mountain-moving prayers, right? Our prayers shouldn't be limited to the things that we hope God can help us with. But rather, our prayers should be aimed at the things we can't even fathom happening aside from the intervention of an all-powerful God, right? Church, I don't think we pray big enough. I just don't. If you've attended many prayer meetings in your life, you have likely prayed more for boo-boos and discomfort than God-sized dreams for the world. At some point, we need to trust that God will take care of, I don't know, Aunt Mildred's hangnail and spend our time in prayer asking God to infiltrate our communities with the gospel. Right? We need to pray mission-minded prayers. Now, we can pray for anything. And if Aunt Mildred's hangnail is on your list, pray. 
But let's be a people who spend the lion's share of our prayer time asking God to do the things that Tylenol can't and that only God can. Right? May we pray more for the, the salvation of our country than for our own comfort. Amen. Right? May we pray more for lost people than lost income. May we pray that God would change lives rather than simply circumstances. May we pray audacious things like God ending the orphan care crisis in Manitoba. How about that? Or like God creating restoration among the indigenous peoples of Canada. Right? Or like God infiltrating our universities with a curiosity for him. Or that prayers that wars would cease, that peace would reign, and that the gospel would go out to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Right, church, may we pray things that silence the room because we're not sure if we're even allowed to pray that big. Right? What is it that you think is too big to pray for? Right? What is the, the thing in your mind that is a foregone conclusion that just won't happen? When you pray, friends, start there. Because prayers of faith confidently contract out the things that we have no capacity to do ourselves and watch as God throw mountains into the sea. As one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, says, pray like you actually believe in a God who is too wise to make mistakes, who is too kind to be cruel, and is too powerful to be subjugated to the normal forces of the natural universe. Which connects nicely to the third thing that Jesus teaches the disciples about prayer. He says, ask God. Ask God. Right? Jesus says, ask God, no matter what the ask is. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a few friends on Facebook who ask for things. Do you have those friends? Hey, does anybody I know have one of these that they're not using anymore that I could have? Or, you know, hey, I'm moving on Friday. Anybody want to help me out? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Well, it amazes me how often these friends receive what it is that they ask for. Now, it kind of drives me crazy because I could never be that person, right? It's just not in my DNA. It's not how I'm built. But here's the thing. They receive because they ask. And people like me do not receive because we're too prideful or whatever it is, right? We don't ask. I don't ask. And so I don't receive, right? And it's precisely the, the, the truth, the concept that James talks about in James 4.2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Right? And Jesus here says that God's people bring their request to God. Now, as we read through the scriptures, we learn that prayer is much more than simply asking God for things. Okay, Can I be clear about that right off the top? Prayer is not simply about making requests. Right? Prayer is about praising God for who he is and what he's done, Isaiah 25. Prayer is about drawing near to God, James 4.8. Prayer involves confession and repentance, 1 John 1, 9. Prayer involves resting in the presence of God, John 15, 5. Prayer involves communication and listening, Jeremiah 33. And the list goes on. Prayer is significantly more than simply asking God. However, 
Just because prayer isn't only asking doesn't mean that prayer doesn't involve asking, right? We are invited by God to ask for what we need. And that is what Jesus invites the disciples into here. Verse 24, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours, right? Whatever you ask for in prayer, which means ask in prayer. Effective prayer asks God. And the ask is in regards to what? Well, everything, right? Subject to God's will, of course. God will never grant that which is opposed to him or his plan. But verse 24 says, whatever you ask for, whatever you ask for, we are to come before God with our requests in every circumstance from the hangnail to the insurmountable mountain. As we read in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. May we not be people who are too proud or too cynical to ask God to bring our requests to him. Like any good relationship, communicate with God about everything that you may willingly show him your heart and that you would come to know his. Next, the text teaches the disciples to believe when they pray. Verse 24, we already read it, we'll read it again. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Now just to be honest with you, my default response to this verse is to qualify it. Right? In fact, until this morning, literally probably 25 minutes ago, You can ask our slides person how tight this was. I literally had three pages of qualification to say right now as to why we need to be careful with this verse. And and I still strongly believe that, right? Every verse we read in Scripture needs to be read in light of the rest of Scripture, right? And in this case, the Scriptures teach clearly that when we pray, we're to pray in submission to God's will. And I don't think that this verse supersedes that Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, 9 to 10 to say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven before we submit any requests of him. Our requests are subject to God's will. And John, 1 John 5, 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that, we ask, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Right? And so we do need to be careful not to let a, a passage that was meant for the disciples regarding their mission in the world to automatically apply to the double-A goalie who's praying that he won't let in any goals that night. Right? Or to the 21st century family who's hoping to get approved for a second mortgage to buy a lake house. Right? Context is really important in order to apply things correctly. Right? As I said, I could go on, and one day I might, But today I'm going to stop there because I think I just want us to sit with the weight of this verse and be challenged by it when it comes to our own prayer lives. Because if we need to be challenged as a church, I think it's towards belief, towards great faith. So let's read it again. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Jesus is saying 
that when you come to God in submission to his will, of course, you should have so much confidence in who he is and in his power and in his sovereign plan that you can live as though he's already given it to you. Right? You can say thank you right after you say please. Now, church, how would our prayer lives change if we believed that? If we believed what Jesus says here, that we can expect our prayers to be answered. Right? Friends, when we pray, do we believe that our prayers will be answered? And here's the follow-up question. If we don't, why are we even praying? Now, it may be that God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want, right? God may not give us what we want. We've all experienced that, and the Bible leaves room for that, right? Even Jesus, who fully believed in the power of God, much more than we could ever understand, and fully believed in God's capacity to answer, had his own request declined at the Garden of Gethsemane because the Father's will superseded his request. But friends... If we don't get what we ask for, may it be because God in his infinite wisdom determined not to grant it and not because we just didn't have enough faith. Because we just didn't believe when we prayed. Again, there's so much more to say about that, but may we be challenged as a church and as individuals to pray and believe with confidence that we will receive anything we ask for that is in line with God's will. And the fifth thing that Jesus says to the disciples about prayer is be unified. Verse 25 says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. See, Jesus is telling the disciples to be unified, right? That they are to be of one heart and one mind as they carry out together the mission of Christ. I don't know how many of you have watched the show The Chosen. I highly recommend it. It is brilliant. It's a story about uh, Jesus and the disciples. Um, really, really good. I actually like Jesus in this video. A lot of the Jesus videos out there, I'm like, I don't really like that character very much. But uh, anyways, in The Chosen, one of the things that, that it shows is real life. And so it shows the disciples kind of bickering, not getting along, because you've got a zealot, and you've got uh, you know, a tax collector, you've got all these people. And, and it reminds us that this wasn't all like everybody high-fiving all the time, right? These were 12 dudes, maybe more, or we know there was more, living together without a home to call their own, without their own space, right? We know there was conflict. And so Jesus here in saying, hey, I'm not going to be able to referee you guys anymore. So be unified, right? To carry out my ministry, to carry out my mission, you can't be running in a thousand directions. You need to be unified. And in order to be unified, you need to forgive one another, Right? When you come to God, Jesus says, to seek his help, check your heart as it relates to those God has put around you and forgive your brothers. 1 John 4.20, written by one of these very men who took on the mission of Christ and who lived in these close quarters, 
says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Wow. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen. See, John says plainly that if you are not right with those that God has put around you, your prayer and your ministry will be directly impacted because your relationship with God will be hindered. You see, unforgiveness is a barrier that gets set up between ourselves and God. And friends, that rings true for us. Right? We must seek as much as we can to approach God with a clean and contrite heart, not full of bitterness and unforgiveness. So when God brings to mind a place of unforgiveness in your heart, we're to forgive immediately. Jesus said, when you stand to pray, right? That means before you even open your mouth, right? When you get up to start praying, that's when you should forgive, right? You haven't even prayed yet. Before you pray, before you invite God into what you're doing, check your heart, forgive your brother or sister. We're to make things right. Now, this text is not saying that we need to have everything together or we need to be perfect in order for our prayers to be heard, but rather he's emphasizing that those who truly know the grace of God, those who are truly penitent, extend the same forgiveness that they have received to others. Right? That it's the same person who extends forgiveness to others who has truly understood and received the forgiveness of God themselves. And if we have hearts that harbor bitterness or do not forgive when someone has wronged us, we cannot assume that we are in a good place with God. Or assume that our desires are in line with his when we call on him in prayer. So as Jesus says, forgive. Forgive others for their wrongs and receive forgiveness for yours. Or as we've heard it said in Christ's earlier teaching on prayer, is an essential element of coming before the Lord. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So church, as we reflect on what Jesus has taught his disciples, may we be people free from unforgiveness and right with the Lord who pray big, who pray often, and who pray confidently because as we've heard Alistair Begg say earlier, we believe in a God who is too wise to make mistakes who is too kind to be cruel, and who is too powerful to be limited. Would you pray with me? Father, increase our faith. God, I pray that you would help us to pray in line with how you have taught us to pray. God, that you would give us big ideas Lord, Lord, that are from you, that we would align our hearts to yours and we wouldn't be afraid to pray big. Lord, and that we would believe what it is that we're praying, that we would put our faith in you, that we would be unified as we seek to accomplish what you have for us. God, help us to have total confidence in your power while still complete submission to your will. 
Help us to trust in you, to think big, to ask, to believe, to be unified, Lord, for your glory, for your name's sake. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch. <laughs>